Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. First of all, a quick commercial. I recommend the Ukrainian beer. We found the last nine bottles, and it fights back when you drink it. It's pretty, pretty good, but it's not bad. It's not bad. My, my daughter's giving me a thumbs down, cut the jokes. <laughs> On behalf of uh, Bob Shrum and I, and our wonderful wives, Otsi and Tiffany, who, by the way, Tiffany Daniel deserves all the credit for the hard work Yay. to put this thing together. Yay. Here, here. And the USC Center for the Political Future. We are, we're doing a little podcast here, so hoot and holler uh, that we do at USC. Check out the website. It's all there. Thank you for coming. We are here to honor our friends. Alex Burns and Jonathan Martin on their incredible new best-selling book, which we're going to talk about. But first, Bob and I have always been very jealous over at USC at the center about the Oscars. So this year, thanks to these guys, we've been able to invent the Kevin, which is the Golden Tape Recorder Award. So we have one for Alex. It's the first award we've really ever given. And one for Jonathan. There you go. There it is, the Golden Recording Award. <laughs> we will have questions from you guys. I want to thank the Academy and um, my family. So, Bob, the first question is yours. Okay, so during the Spanish Civil War, the Loyalist side, uh, the anti-Franco side, their most famous slogan was, No Pastoron, you will not pass. Your title is, This Will Not Pass. That sounds depressing and foreboding to me. What did you mean by it? Well, first, we should uh, thank our gracious host uh, before we plunge into the uh, deep waters of our perilous political times. Tiff, O.C., Bob, Mike, thank you guys for doing this. Um, What a great Los Angeles day and um, a thrill to see so many of you. Uh, A former mayor, Mr. Mayor, uh, we had the current mayor was here earlier. So this is this is a real thrill. And uh, my wife, Betsy's here. Thank you for being here. So Alex and I have been on the road now for, I guess, 10 days ish, something like that. We've been covering politicians for a while now. We've never felt like politicians until now. At the end of the day, I've never had more sympathy for a politician until now. It's like, Jesus, I don't want to talk to anybody anymore. It's like, this is a lot of work, right? They're they're dragging you around. You're going from here and there to all kinds of uh, events. It is is frenetic, but it is great fun. And it's great fun because seeing old friends like you guys. So thanks for, for being here. On a less happy note, look, I think the title works pretty damn well because, well, just look around. I mean, the country is still grappling with the same tribal divisions that it was in 2020 during the campaign. The campaign effectively never ended. 
right? We're, we're still fighting the 2020 campaign. We're still sort of fighting Trump, anti-Trump version of America. And so I think that's why it hasn't, that's why it hasn't passed. And it's unclear if Trump's going to try to run again for president in 2024. But, you know, we, we, we put our heart and soul into this and we believe that we are capturing history in real time. But we also know that this is not a series of events that are sort of relegated to the past. This is this is about today and tomorrow, Bob, just as, as much as it's about yesterday. And so I think that's why the title works. And um, next year and the year after, I think is is going to sort of prove, uh, you know, you know where we're going as a country. And it was difficult to know where to stop in the writing of this book, but we eventually had to stop somewhere. But we feel like twenty and twenty one capture an enormously important moment in the modern history of the country, and uh, it's an ongoing story. So that that's sort of a, I guess, long answer. Are you optimistic about where we end up? Well. Let me uh, stall for a second by uh, saying again, thank you so much to our uh, gracious hosts and to, uh, to, to all of you for being here. It, you really, are learning how to be a politician. Exactly. Um, please go to alexburns.org slash donate. Um, <laughs> with, uh, ten times matched. Am I optimistic? Look, in the short term, I think uh, neither of us is terribly optimistic, and it's hard to be. Look at what the country's been through and what it uh, continues to be through. I think if you had told either of us three years ago that the country was going to be through a once-in-a-century a global public health crisis, the collapse of the economy, contested election, a riot at the Capitol instigated by the sitting president, two impeachment trials of the same guy, and that the battle lines – of the country's political divisions would have changed almost not at all. I think I would have found that pretty hard to believe. And there's not a whole lot to feel great about there. On the other hand, if you had told me two years ago when we were in the throes of COVID, uh, really, really rock bottom, uh, you know, thousands of people dying every day with no end in sight, the economy in a pile of ash. And you had told me that uh, on this day in May in 2022, uh, I'd be in a place like this and we would be uh, interacting with each other uh, in this way and that people would be going to bookstores and uh, buying things and that a currency would still be a thing uh, and that the streets would not just be like a hellish war. Well, maybe the streets are a hellish war zone. But uh, if you told me that two years ago, I think I would have felt like I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that deal. Right. That the, that, you know, we are we are certainly better off than we were two years ago. We're just not quite as uh, well off as I think any of us uh, would like. I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and what I liked about it is what I call the invisible butterfly kind of book, where you're in all the right rooms and all the right places. The internal battle in the Democratic Party over picking a running mate, the challenges Biden in the first term, the Republican world, January 6th, the aftermath, some incredible gymnastics. But working as you guys do in national journalism, you know, you covered all that. But when you dug into the book, what was the most surprising thing that kind of got on the radar? And so we got to dig in here. Um, that's a terrific question. Uh, you know, on, on the in invisible butterfly idea, just to start, I mean, yeah. I think that we really felt uh, going into this, thank you, like we needed to, there's a pretty high bar yeah. to uh, produce something about, you know, it's not entirely a book about the Trump era, although in a sense it yeah. is, because are we really out of it? Uh, that There's a pretty high bar to tell people something that they didn't already know, right? That if we put together a book uh, that was about Trump, like berating and humiliating his sort of like hapless, uh, incompetent staff and, and so forth, uh, that like, you know, whatever, that would probably sell pretty well. And actually, frankly, maybe better than the book uh, that we did uh, produce, but it wouldn't be terribly intellectually rewarding and it would have a shelf 
life uh, of about four minutes. Uh, so we felt like we needed to tell a story about the political system as a whole, uh, and that meant Washington, but it didn't mean just mean the president. It meant the Congress, but it didn't just mean the speaker. It meant folks who are in their first and second terms uh, who have their own uh, really distinctive uh, perspective on things. It meant the states, and it meant city government, uh, including in places uh, like Los Angeles. Is it the most surprising thing? I don't know if it is, but I think that one of the things that we heard over and over again from so many of those characters that I think is oddly not sort of the, the front burner a topic of public conversation around the country is just the pervasive uh, atmosphere of incipient violence at every level yeah. of our politics, right? That I think that, I mean, you know this, when you talk to uh, members of Congress, state senators, mayors, governors, uh, the sense that like any one of their constituents or, you know, not a constituent, but anybody who they run into at the supermarket uh, might have, you know, stumbled into the wrong uh, subreddit that day yep. or listened to the wrong, uh, you know, sort of unhinged uh, radio interview with the wrong unhinged member of Congress uh, and who who on earth knows what that person is going to do. Uh, it is just it was everywhere yeah. uh, in our reporting in both parties in Washington, uh, outside of Washington. And I do think that the sort of a veneer of normalcy that they're all going about their business and voting on stuff or not voting on stuff. And, you know, they get called to their votes uh, you know, on the floor, just like they always have. Uh, it, it just hasn't broken through in the way in a way that I think your average American ought to understand the threat that their public officials uh, feel every day. This is closer to a 19th century type moment where the tensions, not just between sort of would be, you know, uh, assailants and members of Congress, but between members of Congress, between the lawmakers, the tensions are so raw. And especially in the House, it's a little different in the Senate, which is kind of the House of Lords, but the House is so raw now. And you know, we spent a lot of time in the Capitol working on this book, in part because obviously that's where a lot of the reporting was to be done, but in part because COVID sort of closed down the Washington Bureau of the paper. So, just sort of being there and sort of seeing those relationships, there's a metal detector on the House floor now and the mass question, it, it just became really toxic. And um, you know, there was nearly a fist fight in the House the night of January 6th. And we just kept waiting as we did this book for, okay, like that obviously is going to happen here. It's just a matter of, of when, not if. And people don't fully realize the threats that have come into the members of Congress. Yeah. That these rank and file members who you wouldn't even have heard of have had to get their local sheriff's department or local PDs to like go to their house at night and watch their families. Uh, it would shock you who these members are, backbenchers. And the more prominent members, they have these kids answering their phones day in, day out, and they get the worst kind of abuse to their phones every day. Uh, and it just breaks your heart thinking about these 23-year-old, you know, super ambitious, eager beaver kids out of college, and they're answering phones for a member of Congress and getting berated every day. So it's um, it's not a happy <laughs> Hollywood, sorry. It's not a happy Hollywood sort of story here, but it's it's real, and um, it's very sobering to think about. And uh, we were sort of in the middle of it. I just, just for one more point on what Alex was saying, I think we, we've all read a lot of books about politics and campaigns that sort of feature a handful of key staffers, operatives, or members. We really want to do a more panoramic approach and sort of make the reader work a little bit. Like, yeah, you know, you know you're going to have to learn some new names here, but these folks count. So, how'd you get the tape recordings? Well, oh. <laughs> so, speaking of Hollywood, I mean, <laughs> we've gotten this question so many times. Um, on the book tour and doing interviews. And the journalist here, the folks who used to work in journalism will appreciate this. Like the idea that you just get this material dropped on your doorstep with like a big red bow around it and like, here's your Pulitzer, have fun. Like, 
enjoy. That's like not how it works at all. It takes a lot of clawing and scraping and like chasing down tips and trying to, you know, confer with, with people, try to like get a sense of what's real, what's not real, what what's hearsay, what you can put in print, trying to get things on background, on the record, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it just... But it was a sort of long, long process, and we were able to get a number of things, memos, notes from meetings, and yes, audio tapes, that I think offer a really important contribution to history. And that sounds a little conceited, but I think future historians are going to have the, the building blocks to sort of capture what this moment meant, thanks to what a lot of the material that we were able to obtain. You know, we didn't want to rely on memories of six-month-old conversations in rooms that would be contested or sort of vague, or we wanted to get the genuine article to sort of reconstruct these moments, and we were lucky enough to, to be able to do that. One last question for me, and then I think we can go to Q&A. One thing, having been inside the Republican Party for a long time and watching kind of the devolution, I thought the portrait of Kevin. Devolution would be a good. Yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> the the portrait of Kevin McCarthy is probably what a lot of people expected, maybe a little worse. But talk about Mitch McConnell a little bit, because in the, your book, it's more complicated. I think what one Bible say he's smarter, true, but. Uh, Talk about that a little bit, because there's a struggle going on there. I think the side I'm on is losing, but it's a much more nuanced portrayal, I think, than Kevin, who's very on the surface, whether you like so him or hate him. Dryer at all. <laughs> so, uh, uh, sure. You know, one of the things about uh, putting out a book is that sometimes people then write uh, their own reactions to the book. And one of the things that sometimes happens is uh, they end up articulating things that you sort of lay out in the book a little bit more sharply than uh, you laid it out uh, yourselves. And you read the a piece and you think like, ah, I kind of wish we had said that. And our colleague Ben Jacobs wrote a piece for New York Magazine about the book saying that, uh, you know, we sort of present this dialectic portrait of the Republican Party wrestling with uh, what to do with Trump. And on the one hand, you have a Liz Cheney as, you know, total resistance. On the other hand, you have a Kevin McCarthy as a total uh, self-abasement and surrender. And that the synthesis is a Mitch McConnell, right? And I thought, ah, that was a really good line. That should have been ours. Yeah. And, you know, you can see with him the sort of, you know, two voices on uh, one on each shoulder wrestling with what do you do in this situation. He's as every bit as outraged as anybody else on the night of the 6th. Then he ran into Jonathan uh, and told him so. And in the days after, you know, as we report in the book, he says that if this wasn't impeachable, nothing is. Uh, the Democrats are going to take care of the son of a bitch for us. Every expectation in that moment uh, that Trump will not just be impeached, but likely convicted and barred from running for office again. But the thing that I think is consistent about McConnell and where you don't have the sort of tug of war uh, with one voice on each shoulder uh, is his sense of what it takes to acquire and hold power and the imperative to do that. And, you know, I think that one of the things that it won't come as a surprise to really anybody here, but I think to your uh, average American uh, the uh, or, or even your uh, average uh, person who uh, buys and reads books, I think the pervasiveness of electoral considerations uh, at every juncture in this book from COVID striking in the winter of, of 2020, uh, certainly through January 6th in the impeachment trial, the number of times that people who are charged with uh, protecting the public good uh, are also sitting there thinking, well, like, what does this mean to candidate recruitment in you know Georgia? It's just all the time. And McConnell is certainly a part of that cohort where he wants to confront Trump. He wants uh, to be done with Trump and then kind of talks himself into the idea that, you know, it actually wouldn't really benefit anybody for me to go to open war with him and just let him sort of uh, lose altitude, which is the term that he often uses, lose altitude sort of of his own uh, like incompetence and, and comparative uh, irrelevance. And, you know, I think with the benefit of I think it was clear to some people at the time. Uh, 
including uh, Liz Cheney, uh, as we uh, quote her saying in the book, uh, that was a bad bet. Uh, and I think as we sit here today, uh, it pretty clearly uh, didn't work out for him. There are two very different figures, Mike uh, McConnell and McCarthy, and um, th- there's not a really personal relationship there. There certainly isn't a social relationship there. I mean, you know, Kevin McCarthy's idea of a good time is like going to Mar-a-Lago and posing with Donald Trump Jr. and putting it on Instagram. Mitch McConnell's idea of a good time is like reading a biography of like Henry Clay. So they're very different in that sense. And I think they're very different too. I, th- I think McConnell, like McCarthy, wants to sort of claim power. I think, I think McConnell also has his eyes on a legacy, which is sort of shifting the judiciary uh, in this country to the right. And I think McCarthy is just totally fixated and on, on trying to uh, on trying to keep power. But if, if there was somebody here who served with McConnell and McCarthy in Congress okay, and could me. speak to the two personalities, is there anybody? Oh, anybody Chairman here? David Dreyer we is here. We have a rules committee with, chairman here from the Republican You served with leadership. McConnell and McCarthy in Congress. Do you have any thoughts on this? <laughs> good dodge, good dodge. I want to thank Dreyer for Congress for the pool pump and the retractable cover. back in the, back in the And we won. <laughs> Mike, should we turn this Yeah, let, let's turn it over to you. Questions. See um, obviously, there are source rules when it comes to the tapes, but how did you deal with sort of the push-pull of wanting to break news in the pages of the Times versus saving it for the book? And this is something that's yeah. obviously come up in so many books in this era. Sure. When we had, like, extraordinary news that was not limited for the book, we, we put it in the paper. But, Seema, as you know, like, when you have source agreements with people, it is, it, it's ironclad. And we went into our book report with firm understandings with a lot of sources that this is not going to be in the paper tomorrow, next week, or even next month. And I think that gave people a reassurance. It emboldened a lot of them, to be candid, to speak more for history. In fact, we'd use that phrase. We we would tell people as we sat down, look, this is not going to be in the paper tomorrow or next month. It's not going to be out in print till like next year. And like next year sounds like a long time. And so people, once they had that reassurance, were a lot more willing to sort of uh, open up a vein and especially talking about their own party, which is so delicate, as you know, in Washington or beyond Washington. And I think, you know, once, once they knew that they were talking for history and potentially sort of, you know, capturing their role in history or a better framing their opponent's role in history. I, I think that that, that kind of, um, that helped a lot. Our first book, and it was really eye opening to us how candid people were once they knew that they were speaking about historic times. And lastly, just the times we lived in matter too. I think people who served in, in Congress, who were governors, mayors sort of recognize the extraordinary nature of this period and kind of wanted to have their say. When you look at the Republican bench and the Democratic bench, who in the future do you think can be elected that gives us a way forward that is not as contentious as what we're experiencing? You know, I don't know. Uh, I, the first part of your question is uh, easier than the second part of your question, right? There are a lot of people who can be elected. And, you know, I think every political reporter has written all kinds of, you know, how good is the bench? How many people are on the bench stories over the years? And, you know, like when you've been through a couple of campaigns, uh, I think you start to appreciate that, like, the bench only needs to have one person who's a good candidate to get you where you want to go. And sometimes having eight good candidates is uh, actually not the greatest asset because then you can end up with somebody who squeaks by with a modest plurality uh, in a series of winner-take-all primaries and then serves one term and then plans to run again. Uh, just speaking in generalities here. Uh, but but in terms of um, 
Uh, in terms of who can win and sort of like heal the land, look, I don't know the answer to that question. I think that there are a good number of people in 2020 who thought that Joe Biden was that guy, right? And that's obviously not the the sequence of events that has come to pass. I think that the in, in a lot of ways, the easy way out would be uh, us thinking that we can find a person to do that, right? When in reality, we're dealing with this cultural sickness in the uh, you know, American political sphere and sort of structural weaknesses and defects in the political system itself. So it would take a pretty uh, extraordinary person uh, to get that job done. I think in likelihood you're talking about you know, multiple people over multiple uh, campaigns at different levels of government, more riding a shift in the underlying dynamics of the country. Um, and I don't, I don't know what uh, triggers that. I do think, I mean, and this is Jonathan and I, I think like a lot of political reporters, like a lot of political consultants uh, have a soft spot for uh, people outside of Washington. Um, and I think that, you know, historically, uh, change candidates often come, you know, not from uh, the ranks of Senate committee chairman or even House committee chairman, uh, but, you know, but, but from somewhere else with a different perspective on, on the moment we're in. Alex. Or they come from the Celebrity Apprentice. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, I'm curious about the challenge of making Joe Biden interesting compared to Trump. Yeah. So you, you come from this Trump era where all these books about him do so well, cable news through the roof, everybody's so engaged. Yeah. And then Biden comes in, in, in a large part, yeah. saying, I want to make it more boring. Yeah. And now you're in the business of covering him and trying to get people to buy the yeah. book and trying to you know sell stories and, and get that message out there. And I'm, I'm curious about the difference in yeah. reporting Biden versus Trump and, and how different people act around them in terms of leaking and all the rest of it. I'm happy to answer that. I, I want to piggyback real fast on what Alex said, too. And there are some people here who will appreciate this, including Ron Brownstein and Adam McGurney. The Democratic Party kind of feels a little bit similar to the party in 91 and 92 now in the sense that you have sort of an older Washington establishment in the, in the Congress and sort of ranks of uh, governors uh, who could sort of make their make their step who are younger and you kind of reflect a different kind of politics. Um, it's not, not the kind of moderate versus liberal frame that, that you guys covered, but the sort of yesterday versus tomorrow. You can sort of see that happening in the next couple of years, I think, with uh, a few Dem governors. So Alex and I had had this conversation so many times, Alex. Like, the idea that there's no leaks from the Biden White House, the idea that Biden is boring. Oh, man, like, this is just so dry. We couldn't disagree more. Like, we, we were thrilled with the amount of reporting that we were able to do, uh, as you'll see if, if you read the book, and hopefully you will. The second half of the book is basically on Biden's first year as president. And we, we thought that there was a lot of sort of interesting storylines uh, within the White House itself, with Biden himself, with Biden's relationship with Congress and his difficulties in the House and Senate. And obviously, the fraught nature of the Biden relationship with the vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, and her challenges. I mean, th there's a lot there to mine, and I think I feel like we did. Look, I just think you have to be somewhat creative about how you go about doing it. And you spend a lot of time talking to people outside the White House. And, you know, I think you'll find out interesting things. The idea, I think, of just sort of waiting outside the lower press door in the West Wing, like waiting for a, a scoop to be handed over to you by Steve Bannon. Like, obviously, that doesn't happen in this White House. Like, Jen Psaki's not going to come downstairs and be like, you know what, Clayne's a son of a bitch. And uh, he's totally screwing over this White House. Or perhaps she does, but she's not doing it for us. So, like, that's not going to happen, right? But guess what? That's like a normal White House. That's how all White Houses before Trump operate. You had to be creative. And, of course, you were going to find, like, pressure points and tensions. But you just had to know where to look. And I think if you read this book, I think you'll find more than a few.
There he is, the master of Twitter, Tyler Danucci. Follow him on Twitter.com. And by the way, fast plug, if you guys like this book and are enjoying it, feel free to post it on social media like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Get that cover jacket on social media. Get it moving around. A TikTok, true social, we accept. We, we don't judge. We don't judge. We're platform, platform agnostic. I, I think we uh, have Facebook, a fine, MySpace. Find local bookseller from Chevalier here with a credit card machine if you want to pick up a copy. Yeah, we have copies here that you can pick up too. And uh, uh, excuse me. Yeah, go ahead. No, thank you, Jonathan. And we'll I, sign copies for you afterward too. I, yeah. I put it on my Friendster. So I, I, <laughs> huge. I, um, Prodigy too. Something that I was taken not surprised, but a little, still a little bit during the book was how sure Mitch McConnell was after January 6th that this was like, as you talked about, this was an impeachable offense and that if this wasn't, as you said, nothing is. And since then, in the past week, I think Jocelyn Benson, who's the secretary of state of Michigan, said that she had been told that the former president, Donald Trump, had said that she should be committed for treason and executed for what she did in, you know, we don't, we don't know if that, what the source was on that. But do you get the sense that there is any line at all for, for someone who, like, when we talk about Mitch McConnell, is, uh, who is so sure that he was going to, he was going to convict Trump or that the Democrats would do it and he would sort of push it through the line and then didn't, do you get the sense that there is anything? Um, not, not really. Uh, no, I mean, look, I think that the sort of counterfactual is like, what if the January 6th riot happens three weeks earlier and Mitch McConnell and friends can't hide behind the, you know, he's a former president now and uh, therefore procedurally it would be uh, inappropriate in the great, uh, I would say, Los Angeles tradition of judging someone to be uh, guilty as hell, but not convictable. Uh, right. Um, but like, I think the fact that he did that tells you more about the like underlying political impulse to find reasons not to confront him head on than like the actual legal mechanics of the impeachment question. There are, there, you know, the notion that you can't, you simply cannot convict a former president is like by no means an open and shut case. In fact, like the evidence, the balance of the evidence is on the other side of that question. Um, and I think it, one of the extraordinary things that it happened like less than a year and a half ago, but people mostly don't remember that it happened as they're voting to acquit him. Republican senators are going to the floor and issuing statements and saying, like, perhaps some other legal authority uh, will do this job. Uh, right. So it's not that there's like there's nobody uh, in that or very few people in that situation who are making an affirmative defense uh, of Trump's behavior. And this is something that, uh, you know, again, was so just jaw dropping in those tapes of uh, Kevin McCarthy, where they're talking about ideas. <laughs> like invoking the 25th Amendment to uh, eject the president from office immediately. And one of his closest allies in Congress, at no point does Kevin McCarthy say, I'm not sure that would be uh, appropriate. I'm, I'm not sure that's what the 25th Amendment is designed for. No, he says it would take too long uh, because the president can contest it and then push it back to Congress uh, for a vote. And you basically end up where you would be in impeachment anyway. So in those weeks, there's no uh, real ambivalence among mainstream Republicans about whether uh, Trump is guilty as hell and deserves some kind of punishment if only somebody uh, would would deal it out for him. Ron? I was really wondering, um, to follow up to the previous question, as you came out of your reporting, to what extent do you believe congressional Republicans, Senate and House Republicans, if they have the power, would be willing to knowingly steal the 24 election, knowing that their candidate lost and knowingly taking steps to subvert the result by throwing out results from individual states that went against them. To what extent do you think McCarthy and or McConnell would be willing to do that? 
I mean, entirely speculative right now. Obviously, we don't know the circumstances of 24 or what it would look like. I can just say broadly speaking, if you look at past history, which is the aftermath of 2020, you know, McConnell on a conference call told Senate Republicans that don't do this, like don't contest the election on the floor. It's not going to work. It's just going to create bad press before Georgia. And obviously, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. Uh, disregarded that and tried to contest the election. Uh, on the other hand, Kevin McCarthy never really offered guidance at all uh, about what to do to his members so much so that they complained shortly before January 6th uh, about his lack of guidance. And he he sort of like bridled in a very un-Kevin McCarthy-like way. He's usually pretty affable and said, well, you just want me to sort of give you my voting card? So I think what I'm getting at, Ron, is I think like past history suggests that there would be more opposition to doing that in the Senate conference and in, in the House because of the nature of the Senate is just less Trumpy than, than the House is. And now that said, by 2024, January 25, the Senate will probably be Trumpier. And so I think it's less clear cut. But I think there is a difference between the House and Senate and what they'd be willing to do on that front, at least today. The only thing I'll just add real fast is that like, there was a Republican member. It's not quoted in the book, uh, but we were just looking over the transcripts of the last couple of days. And I don't want to say the name because I'll get it wrong. Who, like on a, a meeting in a meeting of House Republicans on the eve of January 6th, like explicitly raised the question of like, does anybody think we would be doing this if we were in the majority? Like, it's easy to do this now because we know we can't get anywhere with it. And that's one of the big questions going into 24. I wish there was a clearer answer. Are you concerned about how America is staggering from a global pandemic, a tumultuous transfer of power, and ongoing polarization? Then the Science of Politics podcast is for you. The Science of Politics, hosted by Matt Grossman, will give you a data-driven understanding of what's going on behind the scenes in American politics with the latest empirical studies and without any partisan punditry. The Science of Politics is produced by the Niskanen Center, a nonpartisan national think tank. Subscribe to The Science of Politics on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Turning to the Democrats, Kamala Harris doesn't come off very well in this book. You mentioned, Alex, how President Biden was taken aback by the number of uh, California Democrats who had antipathy towards uh, her potential uh, selection as the running mate and were promoting Karen Bass. Uh, forecast for us what happens based on everything that we know now. You will have a Speaker Kevin McCarthy. You could have a Republican uh, majority in the Senate. How does that rearrange 2024 in the eyes of the DNC? And Kamala Harris ostensibly is the heir apparent, but based again on your reporting, it doesn't seem like in the heart of hearts, Democrats in Washington really think she has the muster if indeed Joe Biden does not run for reelection to actually win the party's nomination or actually defeat Donald Trump or any other Republican, Ron DeSantis or anybody else, in November 2024? Um, I'll be real fast and then turn it over to Jonathan, because this is one of his absolute favorite uh, subjects. Um, <laughs> no, you said ostensibly the heir apparent, and like ostensibly is the operative word there. I think one of the things that we you know, sort of detail in our reporting on the vice presidential selection process is that like, at no point did anybody who we talked to about the choice of VP ever suggest that Biden was thinking at the time, this is the person who I definitely want to pass 
pass the torch to uh, in four or eight years. It's not that he thought she was unsuitable uh, for that task, but that it was a totally short-term decision. It's early August. I need to get through early November uh, without screwing this thing up, and we'll worry about later. Uh, later, And, of course, later is kind of getting pretty soon now. There's a juicy Karen Bass angle, too, which you should probably touch on, hometown crowd. Yeah, so uh, during the VP selection part of the book, we report that Biden was taken aback by the ferocious Californians. Uh, Biden, obviously, East Coast politician, had relationships out here over the years, but doesn't know the politics of California that well. He doesn't realize that it's a big state, but it's a very small pond here politically. And he's getting a lot of pushback against picking Kamala Harris from California Democrats. And he asks his advisor, he's like, what, what's going on out there? Like, a lot of them don't like her at all. And as you guys know, I mean, part of that is professional jealousy, right? She's had a meteoric round and uh, I think that has sort of bred some resentment among California Democrats toward her. But there's also there's a genuine unease with the vice president among Democrats in her own home state. And I think Biden was hearing that. Look, I think we are in sort of uncharted territory here. We have never had a president who was 80 years old in his first term, was uncertain if he was going to run for reelection. And I think that made the pick all the more important. But as Alex mentioned, it's so striking how little they were thinking about either governance or succession. And you can't blame them on one hand. Look, the priority one, it was beat Donald Trump. And that's entirely what their thinking was by picking Kamala Harris. But the day after, you're left with, okay, well, how do we govern now? And then Biden's 80. Like, what do we do in 2024? And they just never sort of thought through those things. I will just say one more thing. This is a conversation in Washington, D.C. or beyond Washington, D.C. Every Democrat is having this conversation right now, which is what are are we going to do? And they don't want to say it on the record right now because we're in the midterms, but there is sort of deep concern about Biden's candidacy in 24. And if Biden can't run in 24, what the party does. And um, it's just a matter of time, probably like at, you know midnight, uh, the midterms, <laughs> election night, where the conversation burst into the public. But it's it's happening just below the surface now. And if these midterms don't go well, I'm, you know, Biden will face pressure to make a decision sooner rather than later about 2024. If the midterm is interpreted as basically a vote of no confidence in Biden's government, that he's going to face more pressure about 2024. And um, that will obviously push the BP Harris question to the fore. You know, I do have to add here yeah. that when Harry Truman was picked in 1944 by FDR, the reaction of most people in Missouri right. and the Missouri political establishment was, my God, right. Harry Truman? Right. <laughs> yeah. And who had a rough rough run for a while when he became president. No, home state resentment is not a new phenomenon in American politics. Yeah. Yes, Tiff, our hostess, yes. Hi. How has Roe v. Wade changed the electorate? So that's obviously beyond the scope of the book, but like the very last, uh, the very last uh, event chronologically that is referenced in the book, and like boy did we get it in right under the wire, was Justice Breyer's retirement. And you know we didn't know who would replace him. We certainly didn't know uh, how uh, Roe uh, would be um, resolved, and we still don't know exactly how it will be resolved. But look, like one of the things that we, you know, we've covered this for a couple of years now. I think this is reflected in the book. Is the overwhelming political importance of uh, these sort of moderate suburbs around basically every major American city where people are not uh, very comfortable uh, with uh, left-wing Democrats. They loathe Donald Trump and they kind of like yearn for the days when they could like have their tax cuts and their abortion rights and their cops on the streets and, you know, clean water and so forth, right? Dry um, and that, yeah. <laughs> uh, wow. Um, you sounded it out right there. Tan, yeah. rested, ready. <laughs> 
And look, I think we don't, you know, I think the specifics of the decision will matter a lot. If it really is uh, what uh, Politico reported, then I think that's like a, a bombshell in the campaign. Uh, if it's an, if it turns out to be another one of these decisions that, you know, significantly shaves away at abortion rights, uh, but doesn't like completely detonate the status quo, I think that's a different story. But, you know, right now, every sort of arrow that you can chart ahead of the midterm elections, inflation, crime, gas prices, Biden's approval, like every one of those arrows is pointing in a direction that's useful to Republicans. Uh, and suddenly injecting into that otherwise very uh, politically advantageous environment a massive debate uh, about women's rights and uh, the right to uh, access to an abortion, uh, I think the consequences are unpredictable, but I think it's not an arrow pointing in, in necessarily the right way for Republicans. So January 6th doesn't stick to the Republic. I would think that the peaceful transfer of power, which is the most important thing, more important than student debt or all the other things that we're talking about, the most important thing in the United States is that. So that was interrupted, and then there, and then there was compliance by the GOP to just sort of like let it happen and push it away, and it didn't. It doesn't matter. It like what matters is like Joe Biden's not popular. I just. It blows my mind a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the challenge is that I think a lot of people out there don't necessarily uh, accept the premise that the peaceful transfer of power is the most important thing. I don't mean that they favor the violent uh, struggle for power, but that if you ask somebody who uh, makes twenty five thousand dollars a year and is paying six, you know, six fifty for gas, and they have you know, like a kid who is no longer in school because like the local school board has decided they're still not going to do that, then like the peaceful transfer of power is like a fairly remote consideration, right? That, uh, I mean, I think it's a weird thing to talk about, like the foundations of democracy is kind of like a luxury item in our politics. But I think like you have to be, the rest of the stuff in your life has to be going pretty well uh, for you to be focused on January 6th at this point. And like, I'm not saying that's healthy, but I do think that's kind of uh, just a, a human reality. Yeah. I mean, Democrats have tested this at great length in focus groups and polls uh, of voters as they try to shape their midterm message. And if you ask Democratic strategists, there are some here today, I think they'll tell you that what's top of mind for, for uh, rank and file voters is those workaday issues that, that, that Alex mentioned. And, you know, you go to war with the electorate you have, uh, to borrow from Donald Rumsfeld, right? I mean, that's, that's sort of what they're dealing with. You can't pick your voters. So that's, um, that's their challenge. Bill Carrick. Is yeah. Legendary yeah. Democrat. Speaking of Democratic strategy, why aren't you guys running on the transfer of power bill? Let's ask you. <laughs> why are we what? Why are you not running on the transfer of power as Democrats? That uh, was the question a minute ago. I think, you know, the, most people have more mundane concerns than that. It's yeah. the truth. I have a, a big yes. historic question. The stability of the United States government yes. and our political system has been contingent on having a two-party system. Center-right, center-left parties, they compete with each other. And everything on the edges gets pushed out. How long is that going to last in the current fragmentation that we see day after day, just the Pennsylvania primary, right. the challenges progressives are having to incumbent uh, centrist in the Democratic Party. I mean, we're seeing more challenges inside the parties well, right now than we're actually seeing with the parties conflicting with each other in the political sphere. Now, obviously, they conflict in the governmental sphere. Bob, what do you think? You've seen a lot of campaigns over the years. Uh, I think people talk about this uh, and have talked about it over decades. The system bill, as you know, is so biased in favor of two parties that you might get more diversity, certainly within the Democratic Party. I don't know what's going to happen with the Republicans, but I think breaking out of the two-party system 
given the structures that we have, is very difficult. The structural barriers are huge. Now, we are having civil wars inside both parties, actually. They're kind of more muted in the Republican Party because someone in Pennsylvania running against Dr. Oz will say, well, yeah, I don't have Donald Trump's endorsement, but I love Donald Trump. And then he'll wink uh, and trying to send a message to people in the suburbs that he's okay. In the Democratic Party, it's much more open and much much rawer. And we're going to see this in Texas on Tuesday with Henry Cuellar and Jessica Cisneros. And, you know, we'll see what happens. So far, I would say the results are mixed inside the Democratic Party about the Bernie Sanders Justice Democrats seem to be winning about a third of these contests. And mainstream, and they probably object to my using that 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 adjective. Mainstream Democrats seem to be winning about two thirds of them. Yeah, I think that um, uh, you know Biden's victory and the nature of his victory demonstrated that there is still a very powerful center left Democratic coalition out there. And if you look at the the House primaries where incumbents have been defeated, at least in. 2018 and 2020 was typically in sort of you know districts that had a lot of upscale younger progressive white voters uh, where you had you know more socioeconomic uh, diversity um, those kinds of far left challengers uh, didn't didn't fare as well who else so while you guys have been on your whirlwind tour voters have been voting and I'm curious speaking of the primaries not just for the Democrats but Republicans as well without overinterpreting any one race. There are data points now that we have from the results of the primary so far. How do those data points factor into the story that you told in this book? Well, I mean, the best data points that we have so far, I think, are more on the Republican side than on the Democratic side. I think uh, Seam and I were talking about this before, that I think one of the things that's hard about covering the primaries this year is just the uh, the force of redistricting, where you get all these sort of disruptive or uh, unpredictable results. And a lot of it is about is actually not about ideology or a candidate quality. It's just that, like, I'm now representing four counties that I've never set foot in uh, before, right? Uh, or like, I'm moving from Westchester to lower Manhattan because that's what I want to do now. We Weird, weird stuff. Look on the on the Republican side. I think that it's pretty clear that like Trump remains a major, major force uh, in these primaries. I think that it's also uh, equally clear uh, that he doesn't have the power that he had when he was president to just sort of reach into any given a congressional district or Senate race and say this is the guy who's going to be a senator and this is the guy uh, who's never going to work in this town again. And you know, one of the things that we observed uh, in reporting this book when we were at Mar-a-Lago was former President Trump took a phone call from uh, Lindsey Graham uh, and put him on speaker and didn't tell him that reporters were listening. Uh, and they had a, a you know rather rather uh, drawn out. And the audio, some of the audio is uh, on, on the internet. So they have like a part of the conversation with Graham unaware that we're there. And then, of course, Trump gets to the whole point of this exercise, which is telling Graham to, uh, you know, in fact, there are reporters listening and it's time for you to uh, sort of uh, do your uh, song and dance for me. Uh, and the first thing he says, like, tell these guys about the Trump endorsement. And Graham just goes on and on and on about like I've never seen in the entire time I've been in politics any endorsement as powerful. You know, Reagan in his prime was not like this guy. Uh, and I think that it was that was a fair way to view things in April of 21. I don't think that's true today. I think we're going to get a lot more evidence of that uh, on Tuesday in Georgia when David Perdue's entire rationale for running for governor was Donald Trump has endorsed me and he's going to get crushed. Yeah, I mean, it, this is a little a little simplistic, but. I think Trumpism is prevailing, but that doesn't always mean that Trump himself is prevailing, if that makes sense. I mean, you know, David McCormick in Pennsylvania, who did not get the Trump endorsement, is sort of a hedge fund guy. It's not like he's out there stumping with like, 
you know, Tom Ridge and the ghost of John Hines, right? I mean, he's, he, he's, he's like fully embracing uh, the spirit of Donald Trump, even though Trump endorsed somebody else in the race. So he tried to get the endorsement. I mean, he made a full court press. Yeah. The general election there will be, can he get out of the Chewbacca suit for the, if he makes it, I think it'll be Oz, but you're right. It, it's, um, there's no anti-Trump thing that's getting any votes. Okay, it's One more, perfect Mike? setup. Yeah, this will be um, our last question. Yeah, President Trump's going to run again. He's too arrogant to not. You spoke with a lot of Republicans who, in the aftermath of January 6th, had all sorts of reservations about that run. But when he runs, yeah. how are they going to react? And who on the Republican side is actually going to be willing to use their voice to say what all of them are saying behind closed doors, which is that he's unfit for office. I don't know how many will say it like that, uh, but I think you'll see quite a few Republicans who will use more euphemistic language. It's time to move on and think about the future, not the past. I mean, we, all of us have sort of heard the lines before. We kind of can sketch it ourselves today, what it's going to be like. As for who actually challenges him, if Trump does run... Well, look, I think you'll see two strains. I think you'll see a sort of really never Trump faction who's in the race. Somebody like a Larry Hogan from Maryland, potentially Liz Cheney if she loses Mike her primary Mike or Murphy. potentially if she wins her primary. Uh, uh, Mike Murphy. I thought I was feeling something on the ground here. It was a, it's an earthquake. Um, it's Murphy Mentum. Hey, hi. So, um yeah, so I think you'll see a sort of hardcore anti-Trump, Cheney, Hogan. And then I think you'll see a kind of like like Latter-day Saint anti-Trump, which is to say like Chris Christie, maybe even like Mike Pence could look at it, who aren't like explicitly anti-Trump from day one, but have sort of like, I once was lost, but like now I'm found type anti-Trump. You know, like I've seen the light and this guy actually, holy shit, he shouldn't be president uh, anymore. How far do they get? I think Alex mentioned something earlier. He was kidding, but he really wasn't. The reason Trump got the nomination in the first place is because he was able to sort of take advantage of a plurality of series of winner take all primaries. He got 37 percent. And yeah, that you was, can't do this in the Democratic Party. And that was plenty. Actually. That's right. It, and, and that was plenty. What I'm interested, Joanna, is like what the leadership of the party says, like the incumbent governors uh, who historically have played a pretty important role and obviously Senate leaders, too. Like, what do they do? Is there going to be any effort among the governors, people like Brian Kemp, if he does win re-election, to stand up and say, no, I'm like, you know, we're going to support somebody else. The most obvious uh, candidate that they could rally behind that could be a formidable alternative is Ron DeSantis. The problem there is that the governors don't like Ron DeSantis that much, in part because he gets so much damn attention on Fox that they want. But that's a whole different story for a different time. I'll just chip in that uh, an anti-Trump candidate can't win the Republican primaries. A beyond Trump there you go. And there are a lot of different there's flavors the of that. Yeah. There's the Ben Sassy kind of beyond Trump. And there's a DeSantis, younger, better, new and improved Trumpism. Part of it is what kind of Trump we get. What the Trumpers will tell you now, the, the enablers, is, God, we missed a good Trump who could win an election. This crazy old guy's talking about stealing the election, getting the base riled up. But the Democrats are in such bad shape, we might nominate the one guy they could beat. Crazy Trump 2.0. And that's part of the vacuum that's pulling a DeSantis in. But how do you say out loud, though, is the challenge? You, you can't. Well, I, mean, I mean, but Trump is helping that uh, is. that constituency, right? Because, you know, his message at every public event is, Joe Biden stole the 2020 election from me, and there's 
there's this thing going on in Fulton County with the ballot boxes and do you know this woman in Michigan and, and so forth, right? And I think that like it, he's creating a space that doesn't necessarily need to be there for somebody else to just say like, listen, I agree with him about a lot of stuff, but like let's just talk about something that's relevant to anything. And you know that's part of why Brian Kemp is going to win his primary so easily, right? Is that his opponent is talking about the 2020 election and Brian Kemp is by no means running against a Trumpism, right? But he's running on the Trumpy stuff that he has done since the 2020 election and voters are at least open to hearing the case. With that, I want to thank our incredible guests here. Yay. After you grab their must-read book, Mike, there's hold on. Yeah. And I want to I want to thank Mike and Tiffany. Oh, this was a you. terrific event. Oh, thank Tiffany, you. Tiffany, wherever she is, she gets all the credit. <laughs> And finally, once you have this wonderful book on your bookshelf, there's one you should add. Rock Me on the Water, the story of 1974 by Ron Brownstein, which is an incredible book about an incredible year in American culture and politics. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USC P-O-L Future, that's USC P-O-L Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.